I was sitting there feeling a lot of delight about being here. I'm very pleased that you're all here. I have been uh, thinking about why is it that um, I'm going to talk about defining reality today. How did I come to choose that? And I found myself thinking about how we've reached December, and for me that's the beginning of the new year, new beginnings. I guess as I look out in certainly our country, we are beginning to see a new administration coming to town. And coming to town with um, a mandate for change, something new is going to happen. I know I have a lot of feelings in me that are very hopeful and also very afraid of hoping. And it's also coming to town of a new generation, coming into leadership of a new generation. I can't tell you how many times in the last month I've had the thought like, if a guy 46 can handle the country, I should be able to handle my life. <laughs> and as the year starts, I certainly find, certainly our community calendar uh, begins to think about the year as a blank slate. What are we going to create? And so, I don't know, I came to the thought of um, talking about this moment of defining reality. And I, I want to address it on two levels, on a rather abstract philosophical level, because some things have been going on in philosophy that have to do with how we define reality. But I also want to talk about it in very personal terms, about certain moments in a relationship, in an intimate relationship, in a work relationship, in a friendship, <clears throat> where it turns on how the parties define reality. I want to look at that moment a little bit. Um, I'd like to start by reading you a story. Uh, th this story is a romantic allegory uh, entitled The Illusionless Man and the Visionary Maid. Uh, it's an all-time favorite of mine. I've actually ex excerpted it uh, some time ago from a short story by a writer and therapist named Alan Wheelis. The Illusionless Man and the Visionary Maid. Once upon a time, there was a man who had no illusions about anything. While still in the crib, he had learned that his mother was not always kind. At five, he said goodbye to Santa Claus. At six, he discovered that his father was not always brave or even honest. That the Queen of England goes to the bathroom like everyone else. And that his first grade teacher, a pretty young thing, did not know everything but usually thought only of men. Happiness, he learned, was a myth. Love, a fleeting attachment. At 12, he dispatched into the night sky his last unheard prayer. As a young man, he realized that the most generous act is self-serving. He became a carpenter, but could see a house begin to decay in the course of building. He became then a termite inspector. <laughs> On Sundays, he walked in the park, threw bread to the ducks, dry French bread, stone hard, stamp on it with his heel, gather up the pieces, and walk along the pond, throwing it out to the avid ducks paddling after him, thinking glumly that they would be just as hungry tomorrow. His name was Henry. 
One day in the park, he met a girl who believed in everything. Her name was Laura Bell. And when she saw a bearded young man in the park, alone among couples, stamping on the hard bread, tossing it irritably to the quacking ducks, she exploded into illusions about him like a Roman candle over a desert. You are a great and good man, she said. I'm petty and self-absorbed, actually, he said. <laughs> You've suffered a great deal. I see it in your face. What you see are scars of acne shining through my beard. I could never give up chocolates and nuts. You're very wise, she said. They talked about love, beauty, feeling, value, love, life, work, death, and always she came back to love. They argued about everything, they differed on everything, they agreed on nothing, and so she fell in love with him. <laughs> but he, being an illusionless man, was only fond of her. It's mainly body chemistry, he said. We have a unique affinity, she said. You, the only man in the world for me. You are one of not more than five or six in the country for me, he said. <laughs> it's a miracle we met. I happen to be feeding ducks, he said. She wanted a wedding with a dress of white in a church. <clears throat> You'll be handsome in a morning coat and striped pants, she said. I'll look a proper fool, he said. It's a sacrament. It's barbarism. Symbols are important, so I prefer the Washington Monument. <laughs> so they were married in a church. His hands were wet, his knees shook. He frowned and quaked, but looked divine, she said, in morning coat and striped pants. And she was serene and beautiful in white lace. I'm so happy, darling, so happy. We'll be together always. In our community, an economic bracket, we've got about a 47% chance of staying together for 20 years. <laughs> now, Henry and Laura Bell symbolize, illustrate uh, how differently two people can see the same reality. What is reality? Most of the time, what seems real to me are my everyday day trials and tribulations of working in family and friends and fetching my life. But then sometimes my routine gets shattered. Unfortunately, it's usually by someone's death or loss or pain or some kind of trouble. And when that happens, I have the very direct experience of all of the trials and tribulations of daily life aren't it. There's something deeper here that I need to pay attention to even more. That's what's real. And then there are moments when you just think about that infinite universe out there and how insignificant, not only me in my short time, but how insignificant this living organism called Earth is in that span of emptiness. What's real? Now, whether you think the world is flat or round, or whether you see the sun as rotating around the earth or as suspended in a galaxy of stars, we see that world not as it is, but as we are. In relationships, I think the most crucial moments come, the most upsetting disagreements come, 
when reality seems to be clashing. You're talking about the same moment, but as if you were in different places, different things happen. Who's crazy here is what comes up. Here and now, in this moment, we've got to define what reality is. And usually when our relationships start, we think we're in the same reality. I know you have a slightly different perspective than I do, but we're in the same reality. And then an incident like this comes along, and it shows that you're in separate realities. You have a moment in a love relationship, time that you think you're going to get together sexually, and you have an argument. If you love me, you would hold and comfort me now, because I'm upset. Instead of trying to give me advice and withholding emotionally. Well, if you loved me, you would not act the victim, the child, blaming and bullying me with your feelings. For your own good, I encourage you to be self-responsible here. I don't want to be your parent. And then comes the who's crazy fight. <clears throat> who's crazy is a decision like, I'm right, you're wrong. One up, one down. Or you're right, I'm wrong. One up, one down. Another way of resolving that is to agree like, we have very separate realities. That's a good first step. We're very separate realities. Unfortunately, that step alone leaves us in separate realities with very minimal relationship. Or you can create some kind of a joint reality. And that's what I want to address today. Now, this task of creating a joint reality is not something that most human beings in all of human history have worried about. Because for most of human history, for most people, there was one reality. And that reality was an objective reality. You study your environment and you learn what's real and you figure out how to operate in it. And those who succeed at figuring out reality and how to operate in it are considered more sane than those who don't. But there's a new perspective in the modern world. And that is that those who see reality as out there are increasingly out of reality. They can't keep up. They're victims of circumstances, changing trends. Those who see themselves as reality creators are the ones that have the power. People who can take a stand for something and go through the three stages, being ridiculed, you're out of reality, <laughs> facing the disagreements, and then becoming the authority, taking leadership, taking charge of making it happen. And people who can do that are succeeding. Now, from childhood, we grow up looking out at a reality that seems very much there. We try to figure out, by seeing how our family works and how society works, how to get what we need, how to get our rewards. Now, unfortunately, I haven't found a situation that exactly matched 
like my fi family was. And a lot of things I learned about how to make life work from in my family hasn't worked out of my family. And much of what I understood about how the world worked was from my family. Now, the first view, if you think of the first view that kids really get when they um, try to picture what the world is like, um, it's cartoons. That's the reality that kids like to look at. They enjoy that. And, and in cartoons, um, the power comes from playing with the laws of nature. You know, runners go so fast that they fly. And birds, when trying to escape, they swim. And all animals just about talk. And the best part is that you can get totally crushed by a building, boom! And nobody dies and nobody gets hurt. That's a nice view of the world. Now, history is filled with people believing in views of the world that didn't fit the laws of nature in any way. But if cartoons are wrong about what actually governs human relationships, what's right? Well, religion likes to tell us, and the media very often likes to tell us, but ultimately, our lives are very different because each one of us decides it, decides what's real in the context of our personal relationships in the context of our inner perceptions and conceptions. Now, this idea of an individual deciding how reality is, what reality should be, is new. It's certainly not much before enlightenment because the survival for most of human history has meant that you do exactly what your mother or father did, and you get it right. You plan at the right time and the right way, and you cook the right way, and you store the food the right way, and if you don't do that, we all die. So you better get it right. And knowledge comes from the past, from the authorities. It's not something you dare make up. You don't choose. Who you are, there's not a great sense of I who can move towns and change relationships. I is the experience of being defined by the group. You are the butcher. You are a man. You are a woman. You are a husband. You are a son, daughter. Who you are is defined, how you're going to behave is defined by your group. There's not a lot of choice in that. And that reality is primarily a top-down. And you must act your station, your class, your caste. That determines what you act, not some individual decision. Except maybe the kings and royalties. Knowledge itself came from popes and kings, and it filtered down. And you were told. But then in the 1600s, Descartes, begins to define what is true and what is real by how an individual experiences the evidence. And he says, I think 
Therefore, I am. You are you, and I am not you. We are separate. Therefore, I am I, and you are you. The strengthening in our society of this concept of individual is what has bring, brought us to the point we are now. The result of Descartes is that I, therefore, will study reality out there. Ah, there is an I who must study reality out there and learn what it's about. That's the result. That was a new idea. That was a new contribution <clears throat> from Descartes. But in the 1700s, Kant took the next step. And he said, there is an I, but there's no reality out there. There's no reality out there which um, we have to study because it's the I that creates um, thought and thought creates activity and thought is what creates what's out there. There is no objective out there. What we call reality are no more than things that come from within. Our thoughts lead to those actions and create society. So we have to change how we think to change how society works. Thereby, uh, we change the kind of people that are evolved, the kind of consciousness, the kind of concepts that evolve. So a new question. If, in fact, there is no reality out there the way it is, and it's all a creation, what conditions do I want to create? What is the ideal state of well-being in our relationship, in our family, our society, our community, our work, our world? If human beings are making it, what do we want to make? How are we going to um, figure it out? And of course, the answer is we've got to guess, and we've got to test, and we've got to establish some rules for we think reality works by, rules that we think are going to create a great life. Now, this is the argument I just gave you, is the first generation ethical culture, mostly written by Adler, uh, but shared by the whole generation of leaders. This is kind of the view of where we are. And, and Adler saw ethical culture as um, based on that point of view of people trying to, in effect, define reality, figure out what spiritual social harmony is, and make that happen in the world. So he saw a need for that kind of institution, and that's why it's founded. Now, it seems to me, though, in the 60 years since he died, a mainstream of philosophy has come over and shared that particular analysis. Um, in the 1930s, I want to talk philosophy for a while, and then I'm going to come back to relationships. In the 1930s, we had the rise of logical positivism. Those of you who took philosophy courses might remember the name of A.J. Ayer, who was perhaps the easiest or the most read uh, logical positivist. And what he took on was uh, thrilling to most of our adolescent minds uh, because he basically said the reason that the great questions of philosophy were so unanswerable was not because they were so deep or not because you had to be really wise to get it. It's because there were a lot of hot air. That the questions themselves were unanswerable. They had no meaning. And that's why we couldn't agree on the meaning. There's two ways of a statement being meaningful, he said. One is by definition. A square has four sides. Parents have children. 
And another one is factual. No person is 10 feet tall, unless, of course, you meet somebody who's 10 feet tall and change, change this definition, the fact. But one is definition, one is fact. And to be a factual statement, you have to meet what he called the verification criteria. And that is, you had to imagine a fact, at least, that would prove or disprove something. There are extraterrestrials. Well, you can imagine we could travel from planet to planet in solar system, solar system, and we can decide if it's a fact or not. The result of this kind of thinking led us to, well, led to a disrespect in a way, uh, a, a loss of respect for philosophy, um, a sense that uh, philosophic questions were all not that important because there was no progress uh, necessary. Um, and it also tended to reduce uh, morality to emotional likes and dislikes. Lying is wrong means I disapprove of lying. Um, this is wrong or unjust becomes rather a subjective statement of one person's preference uh, against another. So it caused a lot of turmoil. Uh, philosophers and religionists uh, did not like being undermined uh, by being declared hot air. But what certainly came, came from that apologize, to under, is, is an understanding of reality that it is not about contemplating some absolute being, but to actually examine the language itself, because the language we use is really what we are studying. I'd like to go on with this argument, because by the 40s, after the war, World War II, you have Wittgenstein and Quinn. Now, they're not really opponents. They're actually people who buy logical positivism, but they carry it even further. Uh, I mean, they buy the, the, the notion that you've got to really study language. Um, Air, um, um, Quinn, excuse me, Quinn's uh, position was this, that no fact is even a fact outside of some larger web of belief. Uh, this fall, we've had living with us um, uh, a teenage girl from the Philippines, and she had um, kind of a strange reaction to our dog. And she explained that when she was first growing up and coming of age, um, there were dogs in her house in most houses because but they were kept in little pens because they were kept for food and they ate the dogs. And, but as she went to school, she began making some American friends and she visited them and to their shock, they had dogs like walking around the house and walking around the yard and in the front yard and just walking around. And she was quite taken aback that you would do that with something that you eat and then eventually she got to the point where she really liked them and she brought her brothers and sisters over and they met the dogs and then finally, um, they took in a dog who turned out to be pregnant. And each of the kids got their own little puppy, and everything was quite delightful. But as the days went by, the puppies kept disappearing. <clears throat> and they discovered that their neighbors were seeing these dogs walking around loose, and they were picking them up and eating them. A dog is a clear concept to us. We have a lot of associations of devotion or whatever. But a dog is defined in the context of a web of a broader belief, as is virtually everything we think about. 
and that was Quinn's contribution, that when you face some kind of contradiction of feeling or thought, that's where you have to go back and look at your web of belief. To settle dispute, you're not going to go off and find some neutral reality. It's not like there's a neutral reality and we're off reality and we have to get back to it. Language is not the way Descartes seemed to present it uh, as like a mirror of the world. We're not just seeing the world. What we're doing is we're creating a paradigm, a model of the world in our minds. And some paradigms of the world, and all facts are suspended in that kind of web or in that kind of paradigm. So any individual fact that con conflicts has to re-examine the whole web. Now, Wittgenstein then asked the next question. How do you know which web of belief to believe in? Well, he said that human beings are creatures of purpose. And what you have to un un identify within a web of belief is intention. Because behind the web of belief, there is something that is being created, something that's being wanting. And you've got to identify what the want is. And that's where morals come from. Positivism sought to speak of language and meaning separate from this muddy thing called reality. But then language itself turned out to be a belief system. That moral truth is actually a question of how ideally do we want to define it and therefore create it? What would create the spiritual harmony? Take a breath. I'd like to kind of come out of the abstraction there and refocus towards how does this manifest in our life? And I want to talk basically about five steps, five things that I think need to happen in a relationship to manage the moment of defining reality. Um, the, first, the first one is um, acceptance. Acceptance that each person here, each one of us, is in right this moment a very, very different world. We went to Jamaica last year and people were naked on the beach and well, I'm in a situation I'm not used to and I said to Nancy, I said, well, no, it really was amazing. You know how faces, everybody's face is a little different. But every woman's breasts look a little different. Amazing. Nancy said, yes, and penises are all different too. <laughs> now, as shocking as all that is, what's really shocking is that inside everybody's mind is a different model of life. And that whenever you're talking to somebody What's required here is a translation from one model to another. The, the, usually we make contact with people by finding something that's similar so that we can then project and hope that the rest of them is also as we anticipate. But then when we get, and, and, and we particularly like to choose people who reinforce our own image of the world. We find somebody who reinforces our image, we, we like them. You reinforce my image of how it is, my internal sense of reality. But when you get to know people, what you begin to find out is a great shock that they really only had this much overlap. There was a lot that did not overlap. Um, 
and you have to deal with that. Usually the most difficult moments are the moments when um, what's real is what's at stake. Um, and the choices are that um, you just stay separate, you get a divorce, uh, or you surrender, or you create some kind of shared reality. And that's what these steps are. And the first step is just accept it. The other people's reality are different. You're different. Step one is recognizing that despite your anticipated commonality, it's not there. Step two is look at where the power is. Power in a relationship, um, and I mean who's the head of the household, who's boss, who's in charge, who decides. Power belongs to the person who defines reality. In any event, <clears throat> there is the meaning of the event. Someone is going to decide the meaning of that event, and they're defining reality for that relationship. I know a difficult moment for singles is in what's called the switchback. Those singles will know what that jargon means. And that switchback where they've, people have been close and one person suddenly backs up. That's either you know, a statement for having some autonomy in the relationship, or it's a statement that he's incapable of commitment and closeness, and when he gets intimacy, he runs away. How we create the meaning on moments like that, define what's possible uh, in the next uh, moment of time. Um, who decides the, perp the goals we have, the purposes, the destinations that we have? Who decides how time is spent? Who decides how do you respond to feelings? Is having strong feelings together expressing that feeling energy, or does it mean that, that you're incompetent to manage your life without feeling great crisis? How, do we, how are feelings held? Uh, how do we respond to problems? Is there a kind of a can-do attitude, or is, uh, or is it the world's not okay, or I'm not okay, or whatever? How do, how do we respond uh, to those kinds of difficulties? Now, sometimes we're in a place like when you're the boss or your parent or the person you're with is, is, is ill or in some great vulnerability. It's really important that you take the power to define reality. And they need you to do that. There are situations like that. Um, but as it, it wears thin <laughs> as a way to be, stay in the relationship all the time. This guy gets tired of having to stand up with somebody leaning on him, and this one gets tired that they can't stand up. And so who has power and where they have power and how the power is distributed is a very important question in terms of defining relationships. Uh, one of the things uh, that a, a, a power uh, distribution uh, technique that I like is in any relationship, let's say in a couple relationship, to write down all the things that need to be done or we want to do and put it in least to best order and try to define the giveaway power, power for things um, um, according to what people like or what people would prefer and agree to do. I know that um, some years ago Nancy and I divided power that way such that um, we each have cars that each of us individually uh, have relationships with and maintain. Uh, Nancy's in charge of all things that have to do with money. Uh, I'm in charge of what has to do with food and cooking. Uh, she's in charge of health. Uh, kids we share and nobody moves without a joint agreement. 
uh, pets are hers. Housework is primarily mine. Um, where's the power shared? Where does one person take greater sense of power at some, for some area? And if, you're, if this is a place where you've surrendered power, and I mean by power, the ability to define reality, what's meaningful, to decide what's meaningful, what's the purpose, what's the intention. Um, uh, I believe it, the power, if it's floating out there, it destroys the relationship. It needs to be grounded. And if you're in the position where you've surrendered power and you really like to get the last word, here's the last word. Yes, dear. You've got to be willing to take power and give power away. Step three. Sometimes something happens in which you feel so strongly. I mean, you even get into destructive energy rather than let go of this one. How come? How come certain issues just mm, threaten the relationship? And of course, the answer is, is that there is some re-energizing of a childhood experience that was very upsetting that you couldn't handle as a child. And this situation is reminding us of it, and it's bringing all of those feelings up again. These are hot buttons. Who cooks can be a hot button. How much money you spend for food can be a hot button. It means something. The first counseling case I ever had in my whole life was a couple fighting over chunk light and white tuna. <laughs> they had just got married, and for one, uh, buying frugally was a sign of you really love. And then for the other one, it was buying the best was a sign you really love. And they were killing each other over that. But that is the level of defining reality. Um, how are you going to respond to uh, anger, hurt, vulnerability? All of these can be hot buttons. And what you've got to do with hot buttons is you've got to not touch them. I don't believe you can dis disconnect a hot button as a way of saying we're going to get our realities together. You don't go after the hot buttons. I mean, if you have a passion for, I don't know, cats or a passion for sports, um, is somebody else going to talk you out of it? No. Hot buttons are like that. I mean, no one's going to help you or talk you out of it. You're not going to cure the person of their hot buttons. What, what you do in a love relationship is you avoid the hot buttons. However, if the hot buttons are really interfering in your relationship, there's only one person that really can change it, and that's yourself. You say, ah, I want to get rid of this hot button. You can't change someone else's hot button for them. They've got to change themselves. And even if they decide to change it, you can't help them change it. Because in this hot button situation, this person you're relating to, they're in your paradigm. They are in the model. And you're playing a role that's upsetting them gracefully, greatly. You can't help. That's when you need professional help. You need somebody outside who's not in that upset to help you with hot buttons. Okay, so step one is accept. We got separate realities. Step two is clarify. Who's got the power for defining reality? And step three is avoid the hot buttons. Step four, learn to experience alternative realities. Now, I want to really acknowledge those, I think mostly men, but some women, who use clickers to like change from station to station. Because you represent the, really the next, listen to this dance, you represent <laughs> the next development in human consciousness. 
You see, most people can only pay attention to one reality at a time. And what you're learning how to do is to hang on to multiple realities simultaneously. And it's pioneering work, and I want you to be acknowledged. <laughs> but experiencing a position, hanging on to different realities, what I mean, where I want to go with that is, step four is, that experiencing a reality that's not yours, experiencing yourself being another person, seeing from another reality, is something, it's a knack to be learned. Probably not more difficult than learning a language, but not much less difficult either. I mean, it's something to be learned. It, it means, it brings up a lot of, I think, upsetting feelings. Because to see something, to experience somebody else's reality means leaving your reality. With some faith that you're going to ever get back again. It requires faith that when you discover this new perspective, when you get back, you're going to be able to modify your reality and it won't be on the scrap heap. You won't get like caught between realities and you're out of reality. Or there's this fear. If I look into and start seeing the world from your reality, I'll be into a crazy reality and I won't be able to get out. I'll get stuck in your reality. At least I know I can survive in my reality. I'm not sure about yours. Empathy means suspending your sense of certainty that you know what's real. I think that when my sense of certainty is really strong, I'm assuming that me and the rest of all of you and all the people who've ever lived would see it my way because that's real. And you have a different point of view. If you are able to leave your reality and go to another reality, you are entering into the world of a new question. You're allowing a new question to become important to you. And that is, if my rules for life are not complete, let's say, what are the principles of life that create a good life? And we have to experience creating our own sense of definition, conscious definition of the world. Step five. I think the spiritual task of the most important spiritual task of any relationship is defining reality together. Step five, defining reality together. Communication is essentially an act of love, meaning loving communication is experiencing what another person needs and wants from the perspective of their reality. Now, if you don't tell me, if you don't tell me about your reality and what you need and want, I don't know. And if I don't listen, I'll never know. But it takes people telling and people listening. The kind of thing we're talking about is the kind of thing that we have in our couples and program, which is saying that um, you have to have dates, times for talking got to be in your weekly schedule. And during those times, there has to be an agreement to equal time. Equal time listening, equal time talking. Even if the person who talks is silent for a while or has feelings instead of words, there's got to be the talking and listening. There's got to be equal time. And that we have to look for the deeper meetings. I mean, perhaps I'm the only one, but certain rather mundane activities tend to 
um, I think, cause clashes of reality. I mean, when it's time for us to cook, or me to cook, or you to cook, or when it's time to criticize the cooking, or it's time to clean up the house. I mean, I don't see why you get angry at me. Just tell me it's time to vacuum, and I'll vacuum. Why can't you just see that it's dirty and vacuum? Defining reality is defining a lot. Defining who's going to vacuum can be defining a lot that says about who I am and who you are and what I think relationships and how I think the world works. Bill paying time, shopping time, holiday time, tax time, fix it up time, I'm upset time, sex time, fun time. These are moments where reality are defined and need to be looked at. Office deadline time, need help time, feedback time, promotion time are times when reality is being defined as to who you are and how competent you are, and whatever. Step five, creating opportunity to define reality, creating opportunities for defining reality together. Um, has anybody taken relationship building here? Great. I want to do a relationship building test. When you're talking about somebody to somebody about their experience of reality, how many different aspects of that experience are there? You don't count. Anybody? <laughs> How many? How many? Five? See right? And what are they? Thoughts. Thoughts? Oh, that's enough. Anybody else? Who's another one? Feelings? Interpretations, right. So there are sensations. We've got to find out what people's sensations, how their bodies feel. Find out what they're feeling. Find out what they're thinking. What are their interpretations? I, sorry, I keep doing that. What are their interpretations of what's going on? What do they want? What are their wants? And finally, what actions? What actions? All of those dimensions of an experience have to come out in our times together if we are going to really define our realities together and, and create one. Now, we're all born into a reality, a family, a social culture. What I think we have to do is recognize that we are the meaning makers. And I believe that the course of recent philosophy is affirming our ability to do that. We have to define a reality that enables us to create the conditions of well-being in our individual relationships, in our families, our workplaces, our communities, societies, taking the best from the past, but putting it together in a way um, that works. Hope comes, I think from our knowledge that the world is as we see it and as we make it and therefore we have the power to change it. It's not easy, but it is possible. So let's get busy.